again, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will, you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe them taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is the word of the Lord. Before we pray and dive into this text, um, way back before Easter and before the church season of Lent and our sermon series for Lent, uh, we were preaching through the book of Romans, which might be new <laughs> news to you if you're new with us, which is part of why I mention it. But while we sometimes take breaks for series like that, our normal diet here at Kish is simply taking a book of the Bible and preaching through all of it. And... Um, that is a good way, rather than for me to say every week, here's what I think we should talk about, for the Lord to tell me, Eric, here is what we are going to be talking about, um, whether that's what I would choose or not, which maybe like this morning, I didn't know that this is the text I would choose. But it is a good thing. That said, before we dive into this text, I want to take just a couple of minutes to review where we've been, because it's been a long time. So um, we're going to, in like three minutes, real quick, run through the book of Romans up to this point, all right? So buckle up. Um, Paul starts in chapter 1, and he greets the church in Rome, and then he tells them about this fundamental commitment he has to proclaim the gospel. The gospel, which is the good news of what God has done in Jesus. And so then he starts to lay out that gospel and what it means. First, he explains why we need the gospel. In the rest of chapter 1, he starts by discussing that people without religion are sinful, that they are blinded by sin and follow idols, which maybe sounds good if you're in church this morning, until chapter 2, where Paul then says that people with religion are sinful, and that religion by itself doesn't fix sin, and sometimes it even makes it worse. And that's because in chapter 3, we are all sinful. It is fundamental to our humanity since Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Nobody is good enough or religious enough or whatever to not be broken by sin. And that leads Paul to make this first statement of the gospel, that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely 
by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Because of our sin, we need a salvation from outside of us. Something that God does, not just a set of things that we do. We need to be saved by grace. And in Jesus, that happened. So then Paul starts discussing what that means. First, he discusses the idea of faith. That we receive that grace of the gospel by having faith and trusting in what Jesus has done. And in chapter 4, he uses Abraham as this example of faith. Like Abraham, Paul says, all of us are made righteous before God because we have faith and it is counted to us as righteousness. And then Paul unpacks the benefits of that, the results of the gospel. So in chapter 5, he says that we have peace with God and a new humanity because of the gospel. In chapter 6, that we have freedom from the power of sin because of what God has done in Jesus. We can obey God and belong to him. In chapter 7, we have freedom from the law, that we seek to obey God not out of law and fear of punishment and guilt, that that doesn't make us truly righteous, but the gospel gives us the power to. And that culminates in chapter 8, this beautiful chapter where Paul lists all these other benefits, like that we are made alive by the Holy Spirit, and we are called children of God, and that God will hold us secure until creation is made new. And all of that then drives Paul to make this sweeping declaration of good news at the end of Romans 8. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the first kind of great sweep of Romans, laying out the gospel. And then Paul unpacks the gospel in relation to a couple of particular issues. First, he unpacks it in terms of this specific question many of his hearers have about ethnic Israel and the Old Testament. How does the gospel fit with that Old Testament story of Israel? And so Paul works through this answer, where first in chapter 9, he stresses that salvation has always been about God's choice and God's grace, not about our good works or deserving it. And then that um, in chapter 10, he shows how Jesus is the climax of God's promises to Israel, that he actually fulfills all of the things that they anticipated. And then in chapter 11, he looks forward to this great future salvation of God that includes all kinds of people, including Gentiles and also many from Israel. And then after that, Paul shifts to this discussion from Israel to discuss us, discussing how the gospel should change our world. What about us as we live together as God's people? And in chapter 12, he talks about how it should make us humbly value other people's gifts and then how it should make us love everyone and especially love our enemies, people who would do us harm and who are against us. And that's where we're at, all right? We're in Romans 13, and I've run through that, though, because I think it's important when we come to a text like this in a series like this that we not lose sight of where we've been, right? Because all of this belongs together. But that said, let's pray and dive into our text for this morning. Father, as we turn our hearts to be attentive to your word, pray that you would speak to us, convict us where we err, encourage us where we are pursuing you, and speak the love of Jesus to us in all of it. Be with us sinners as we hear your word, and be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. We pray these things in Jesus' sweet name. Amen. So this morning we get to talk about 
politics. That is what our passage is about, our relationship to the state and government. And right up front, that means that people are feeling different ways. Some of us are feeling nervous, maybe understandably. Some of us are feeling excited, and that's probably why those other people are feeling nervous. And many of us, I think, are maybe just feeling tired. We are worn out. We live in an age where people are talking about politics all the time, constantly. If you turn on the news or the radio or log into Facebook, it is everywhere, and it can be kind of exhausting. But I think there's a distinction right up front we need to make about that as we come to this text, which is that we need to make a distinction always between talking about our politics and talking about our relationship to politics as a whole. Our politics, meaning our views, our guy, our party, you know, the specific issues that we're invested in, and that bigger and deeper question of how we as Christians relate to a world that is political. I think we do a lot of the first, but we don't always spend much time reflecting on the second. And that's really what this text is about. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I just want us first to walk through this passage and try to say what Paul's saying, what he's commanding. And then I want to talk about why he commands that, about the reason that lies behind it. Because I think that's really crucial to understanding how we live in this world. But first, what is the command of this passage? Let's just walk through it, all right? So starting in verse 1, the basic command is, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So the core command is to be subject to the governing authority. What does that mean? Well, in a sense it means obey them. That's the way that we usually take it, and that is mostly correct, which I know is making everybody a little nervous (laughs) with that qualification, but that's because there is an idea of civil disobedience in Scripture, right? Obedience is not an absolute command. So like in Acts 5, when the governing body in Jerusalem tells Peter and the apostles not to preach the gospel, their response is, But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So we need space for that, and we're going to take that up in just a minute. But as a general rule, yes, obeying the civil authorities is part of being subject to them. If, you know, you get pulled over for doing 20 over, you don't say, I'm obeying God's speed limit rather than man's. But what Paul really probably means by be subject is more the sense of treat them as your rightful authorities which particularly for him means don't try to overthrow them. If you keep reading in verse 2, Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So he starts talking about rebellion. And um, if you think, so Paul's world, the the world that he's writing in and the time he's writing, um, Paul is both Jewish and a Christian, and many people in the early church are both Jewish and Christians. And both of those groups are being persecuted right now, by the Roman Empire. Um, The emperor is Nero, who is really the first guy to start systematically persecuting Christians. And so that's happening to Christians. And at the same time, things like that have been happening to to Jewish people. And Israel is kind of in the throes of revolutionary fever. And in fact, like 10 years after Romans is written, there will be these great revolts all across of Israel that ultimately leads to Jerusalem's destruction and the temple being raised. And so... um, So Paul's starting as a baseline, speaking into this world of turmoil, right, and revolution, and saying, don't do that. Don't try to overthrow the government. Submit to its rightful authority, 
even though right now you probably feel like that is wrong. But stemming from that is this idea of subjection then, right? We're called to recognize that the government has a rightful authority. It's worth noting um, that actually helps us understand that, that sort of civil disobedience, whether it's what you see in Acts 5 or certain things in our world, if you think like the civil rights movement in the 60s, right, where people would break segregation laws um, intentionally. Um, what's interesting about that, and the way that those people understood it, um, there were Christians who accused those people of violating this passage and not being subject to the authorities. But their case was simply like, look, what we're doing is we're breaking these unjust laws, and then we're submitting to the consequences, right, and we're peacefully you know, letting ourselves being arrested in order to call attention to their injustice. And there's a real sense in which that's being subject to the authorities, right? Even though there's a sort of um, pushing back that they're doing. But so be subject to the authorities, Paul says. And then he expands on why we should be subject. First, back in verse 1, he said that the authorities that exist have been established by God. And he starts expanding on that then. He says, first, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. So Paul says it's not the righteous that should fear the government, but the wicked, which we might have some questions about, but hold on to that for a bit. We're going to get through this, and then we'll address them. Verse 4, returning to the idea of verse 1, he says, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. One thing to notice about that verse, because people sometimes wonder about it. If you remember way back before our Lenten series, at the end of Romans 12, Paul is discussing how we as Christians um, should love our enemies. And he says, don't repay evil for evil and don't avenge yourselves for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And in this passage, then, that Greek word that the NIV translates agent of wrath is the same word for avenger, right? So there's a real sense where you could translate it as um, the government is God's avenger. So while Paul commands us not to seek vengeance, there is a right place he sees for the state enforcing justice and a right way that we can avail ourselves of that. Um, but that's not the main point of those verses, I don't think, and it's not the main question that we have. We are Americans. We are all about being suspicious of politicians and people in power, right? And so when we hear Paul say that the one in authority is God's servant and that the righteous have nothing to fear from him, only the wicked, we are all like, really? Um, we need to stop for a minute and discuss what Paul means by those statements. Because you could read them in a way that seems to say whatever the government does is right and God is behind whoever is in power 100%. But I don't think that Paul intends it that way. Remember, like we said, Paul's writing these words while the government is actively persecuting Christians. And Paul, who says that the righteous have nothing to fear, has also been thrown in jail already several times for preaching the gospel by the government. And he's going, in just a couple of years after writing this, to be executed by the government for preaching the gospel. So I don't think um, that, he, that he means it in exactly an absolute sense. But I think he's doing two things, two things at the same time. One is that he's discussing an ideal state, that in an ideal world, if everything was as it should be, we should read these verses and say, oh yeah, that sounds perfectly right. You know, the government only prosecutes the wicked and never prosecutes the righteous and sees itself as God's servant in the world. And it's not that states all live up to that, or that any state lives up to that, but that is an ideal. 
But more than that, um, even though he's picturing an ideal, Paul also seems to be saying that to some extent, every state in our world does do this. Not that they realize the ideal, but in some sense, this is true for our government and other governments. Maybe that's simply based off of the reality that a bad government is still preferable to no government. I think there are days that we maybe question that, but... um, But if you just look around at the world, even really bad states like Syria or Iraq under Saddam Hussein are still, in a sense, better to live in than what happens when those states collapse and it's civil war and anarchy. But more than that, I think, is that Paul is cautioning us as he thinks about this state, about our own pride and ability to self-justify. If you keep reading in verse 5, he makes this kind of strange statement. He says, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities— not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Now that first part, the punishment part, makes sense, right? We should be subject to the authorities because otherwise we're going to go to prison. But that second part, that matter of conscience, is more interesting. And here's what I think Paul is saying. So sure, the government is imperfect. It doesn't live up to this ideal. And yes, it can be unjust. But we are also imperfect. And sometimes in our critique of the government, we can lose sight of that. We often redefine justice as whatever is convenient for us, too. So as much as the government might be a flawed judge, it is still the judge that God puts in place as a corrective over my judgments. And so while there are exceptions, we should be humble in the way we relate relate to the state and not pretend like we aren't, as individuals, also sinful. And I know, again, we don't necessarily like that in America because we are all about the individual— And there is a sense in which you can take this too far. But I do think that it's worth showing a little more of that humility in the way that we engage with politics. The kinds of decisions that people in power are making and the judgments they're making about economics and foreign policy and all of these things are big and complicated. And our temptation is to act like they aren't, and our opinions are so self-evident that only a fool wouldn't agree with them. And that's a problem. Conscience should call us to say, man, like, I think I disagree, but I also respect the complexity of these things. So that's the first five verses. And then in 6 and 7, he shifts to kind of a related example. And so Paul says, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to government. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So, related to being subject to the authorities, Paul addresses this specific question about taxes. And Paul says, yeah, the state has the right to demand taxes. It's worth noting that when, um, when Israel ends up rebelling against Rome, um, this is the main way that they initially did it, was just by stopping paying taxes. But um, Paul is essentially, he says that in particular, but then he relates it to this general command about the state's God-given authority, and he says, give to everyone what you owe them. And we'll come back to that a little more in a minute, but on its basic level, it's just summing up this idea. He says that the state has authority, and while it wields it imperfectly, there are things like taxes and revenue and respect and honor that we owe them as the institution that God has placed us under. Now, in just a minute, I want to peel back the layers and kind of talk about what I think lies behind this command, because I think that's maybe the heart of it, as I wrestled with it this week. But first, I just want to stress something about those commands, which is that everything we just said is our politics neutral. 
right? That all applies regardless of who is in power or what we think of them. I just don't know how to stress how terrible the government that Paul is under is as he writes these things. Miro, the emperor, he, he, he murdered his stepbrother and probably his father and his mother and his first wife and his second wife who he personally kicked to death in a fit of rage while she was pregnant with their first child. He probably burned down part of Rome in order to build a giant palace, and then he blamed that on the Christians and started persecuting him. He, according to stories, would light his garden parties with human beings that he lit on fire, right? This is a terrible, terrible government. Next, I mean, I don't care what you think of the other side in America, right? They are, they are saints next to Nero. But this is what Paul says. In sum, be subject to the authorities, for they are from God. Don't rebel. Pay your taxes and give them appropriate respect and honor. And I want him to say more when I read that. I want scripture to say, you know, like to give me some exceptions, right? To say, well, that's all true up to a point, but there's a line. And over that line, you just let them have it, right? And look, I know all of that is a little more complicated because we live in a democracy. Because we're asked to vote, and so we do have to form opinions about some things. But even there, let me just say two things about that in light of texts like this one. On the one hand, um, this text does not mean that we don't have that responsibility to participate in our democracy. We do. We are called to love our neighbors and to seek to show God's truth and find justice in the world as much as we can. And all of those things have applications to how we vote, just like they do to other parts of our lives. We should seek to be good citizens and do as much good in the world as possible, and it is fine that the realm of politics is included in that. It's just worth saying, in particular, I think we should really value local politics um, because it often provides us with a better picture of this sort of thing than sometimes our national politics do. I know that some of you have participated in different ways in local politics, and often it's a lot easier to see those lines from, like, seeking to love our neighbor and, you know, and seek justice and help for our communities and draw those lines um, in that sphere than it feels in this kind of big national realm where it's all about ideologies and stuff. But even nationally, we should participate in our democracy. That said, we should always come back to these commands and others in Scripture, like Peter in 1 Peter calling us to honor the emperor, or um, Paul in 1 Timothy calling us to pray for all those in authority. We should come back to those things as our baseline as we live in the world. And I just, man, I just, I'll just say it as clearly as I can, all right? Yes, we can critique our elected officials, and yes, we can argue for our views, but we must do so with restraint and respect. We must do so with restraint and respect. The, the partisan rhetoric and the, the, oh, look how dumb everybody is memes that you post on the internet and, and the yelling and the talking heads on TV and the fear-mongering, Scripture views all of that as wicked. I, I don't care how right those people are. It's sin, and soaking our brains in that is like bathing them in acid. It corrupts our souls, all right? So it's complicated in terms of how we apply it. But what we're called to do is to humbly respect and be subject to those in authority. That said, that's a hard command. And so I want to shift then to talk not about just what Paul's saying here, but why he's saying it. How can he give that command? 
in light of the world that he lives in and the world that we live in. And the answer is that while Paul commands these things to us about our governing authorities, he does it because they are not his hope. His hope rests in something else. I just want to show you something interesting. If you're a person who follows along in your Bible, turn back to the end of Romans 8. But there is something striking about the end of Romans 8 that is really easy to miss when you read it, but that feeds into what he says here. So starting in verse 31, setting the framework, Paul says, What then shall we say in response to these things, meaning all of the blessings of God? If God is for us, who can be against us? So back when we preached through Romans 8, we gave this a very general kind of application. And it has that application. But Paul also gives it a specific flavor as you read through the verses that follow. So start in verse 33. Paul says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. That brings any charge and condemns language is the kind of legal language of the courtroom that for Paul's hearers, reminds them of the charges and condemnation they're facing from the Roman state. Keep going in verse 35, and pay attention to the examples. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And again, yes, those have a more general application, right? But many of those things have a clearly political favor flavor to them, a clear kind of like reminding Paul's readers of the persecution that they're experiencing right now. He names it persecution. Who do you think is wielding the sword? And that also makes sense then in verse 36, where he says, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quotation from the book of Psalms, but the reason it resonates with Paul's hearers is because the government is killing Christians in his world. And I'm not saying those verses are only about political persecution, just to be clear. There's a reason that Paul uses that language more broadly, because it applies to all sorts of struggles in our life. But the way that he says that, given who he is and his hearers are and the situation they're, at, they're in, I think he especially intends them to hear that in light of the broken state that they are in the middle of. He's calling to mind the oppression and persecution they face, and then he declares his hope. And it's that hope that we quoted earlier when we were going through our summary of Romans. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in Romans 13... Paul calls us to be subject to the state. But that's because before that, he reminds us that our hope does not rest in any state, in any power in this world. That there, That is a love that God gives us that is ultimately our hope, and that nothing in this world can touch or affect. No power in Rome or in Washington, D.C. can change that hope. And as I sat with that, I tried to think, how do I just express what I think that means for us. And what I kept coming back to was this other idea from, not from politics, but actually from counseling and psychology. When you're in seminary, they make you take a couple of counseling classes. And one of the core ideas of those classes is that your role, if you're counseling someone, is what they call being a non-anxious presence. 
We're supposed to be a non-anxious presence. Which is, in counseling, it means this. It says, on the one hand, what you're doing is you're being present with a person. You're hearing their story, and you're with them, and you're caring for them. You're entering into their life. You're present, but you are non-anxious. That person is in the middle of what this, these struggles that they have, and they feel overwhelmed, and it's creating these fears and insecurities, and everything feels all jumbled together. And part of the reason that people often seek counseling or someone to provide counsel for them is because everyone else close to them is also jumbled up in all of those fears and insecurities. And so they can't really help the person because the person's outcome is all caught up with their fears and their struggles too. And so the role of the counselor, those bosses would say, is that while you're present, you are non-anxious in a way that allows you to sit with the person without being drawn into the stuff they're struggling with and provide a kind of security and a kind of perspective that they need. And in many ways, I think that the hope that Paul has allows him to be a non-anxious presence in the political world and calls us to be as well. Which is to say that we are in the world and called to be present and seek to do good as the world struggles, but we aren't of the world. We're not depending on how things turn out in the world. We aren't depending on the state to be on our side or to offer us hope. We're looking to Jesus for those things. That's how Paul can look at that unjust world he's in the middle of. A a world where Christians are being persecuted and killed for their faith and simply say, be subject to the governing authorities. Because his hope is in the indestructible power of the love of God. He's trusting in that God, who is over these worldly authorities, is taking care of him and holding him secure, and that allows him to say these things. So then what does that look like practically for us to be a non-anxious presence in terms of politics? Well, let me offer a few ways that I think that that helps us live in the kind of crazy world that I often get worn out by. First is just do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, which when we talk about being non-anxious is probably the, the baseline place to start. I mean, the engine of politics drives on the gasoline of fear in our world. Everybody is scared. Every disagreement is the end of our country. It's hanging in the balance. And both parties do this, right? It's important in all of this to recognize that we're not naming something that we should only apply to the side that we're not on. They try to make us afraid. It is what, what the pundits on television, again, in both parties, they, they print their money on that fear. And that doesn't mean that we don't have concerns. This is where I think we can feel attention. Of course there are things that we will dislike and be concerned about in the world because politics have consequences. But we have to place our concerns within the context of the victory of Jesus. That in the cross and resurrection, Jesus has triumphed over all the powers of this world. He's made us more than conquerors. And when we feel fear or anger, which is often the product of our fear, then those emotions um, in our hearts should stop us and remind us that Jesus Christ is truly king and holds us secure. So don't be afraid. And then second, being non-anxious in politics means that we should listen well. We should listen well. Part of that comes out of the humility that we mentioned that Paul shows earlier when he talks about the state. We should assume that we might be wrong and that there is much that we have to learn. I think fear often breeds a sense that we have to be sure about everything in our hearts. 
But being non-anxious allows us to say, well, let's see if there's something that I can learn from this person. And even if I can't, it's okay for me to listen to them. And the more we do that, I think the less certain we will feel about our views in a really healthy way. Let me just speak personally. Um, I have a lot of opinions about politics and some pretty strong opinions about politics. But I concluded years ago, just kind of watching train wrecks in certain churches, that as a pastor, I should largely keep those views to myself. Um, Outside of discussions with a few very close friends, um, while the Bible addresses politics, almost all of the particular political debates we have are a lot of, like, steps of application removed from that. And so it's very easy for me as a pastor to confuse my opinions about those things with my opinions about the Bible, which I shouldn't do. And I don't think that, um, I don't think people easily separate out when I'm, like, in pastor mode from when I'm just a dude talking about politics. And I don't think I separate that out very well. And so I think that pastors should largely not engage in kind of really partisan debates. And what is interesting is that since I made that rule for myself, um, I'm regularly stuck in situations where I have to listen and not talk back. <laughs> and, um, and this is not because I'm, like, noble or good or a good listener, just because I'm stuck with it because I made that rule for myself. But the more that I've had to do that and kind of, like, ask questions and challenge people without, like, trying to prove them wrong, but just, you know, to see what they'll say, the more I've done that, honestly, the less sure I feel about a lot of the opinions that I used to hold. Um, I see more of both sides because I've had to do that. And that has been a good thing for me um, and made me realize a lot of my own sinful pride. So we should listen well. And then connected with that, we should also speak with respect. We should speak with respect. Engage in discussions of politics with other people while always treating them with the dignity and respect that they deserve as human beings. Let me just try to name one particular area where we fall into sin. And again, seriously, this is me, and perhaps most of all. We live in the age of political mockery. Political mockery. Um, Internet memes that are all about making side of what buffoons the other side is. Of television hosts whose whole career is to just make fun of their opponents. Of satire everywhere. And even politicians themselves often engage in that kind of mockery of their opponents or the other side. And that is what the Bible would refer to as either scoffing or mocking. Um, And I would encourage you, if you like that kind of thing, which I am often guilty of liking that kind of thing, to just go do a word study sometime on the scoffer and the mocker in the Bible, especially in Psalms and Proverbs, because that is not a group that we want to belong to. In fact, it's pictured as one of the worst groups you can belong to. Mockers are worse than fools, Psalm 1 tells us. All right, two more thoughts on being a non-anxious presence. It also means we should tell the whole truth. We should tell the whole truth. One of the things that worries me about Christians who are strongly partisan in either direction is that it is very easy for us to start sacrificing the inconvenient parts of Scripture. And again, don't apply this to the other side. Apply this to yourself, right? Because people in both directions do that. Um, That can be true in terms of policies. We can find certain biblical ideas don't fit well with our party, regardless of what our party is, and so we end up starting to compromise and fudge those ideas because we want to be able to fully support our party. 
That can be true of personalities. It is very common for us to magnify the faults of personalities that are on the other side and to cover over the faults of personalities that are on our side. And I think that happens because we are putting winning and our sense of political loyalty ahead of our loyalty to God's truth. There is a constant pressure to make compromises, but it is crucial that we as Christians stay committed to acknowledging everything that God says, regardless of how inconvenient it is for us. Sometimes, often, that means we need to acknowledge the faults of the people that we like. Um, and I'll just, I'll just like, I will put it this way, all right, even though this will be hard for everybody. Our current president has personal significant moral failings. Some past presidents have also had personal significant moral failings. And one of the things that pains me as I have had to watch people have these debates is how based on how you feel about our current president or those past presidents, you start, we start denying that those things are the moral failings that they had. And that is deeply worrying. It, again, on either side if we do that, because it's causing us to actually compromise our witness to the world about God's truth in those spheres. It also means we need to acknowledge that the Bible doesn't simplistically fit into our political debates. And again, I'll, I'll just give an example, even though it's challenging. But so if you take the issue of poverty, all right? If you, if you look at poverty as it's viewed in Scripture, you realize there are two reasons for poverty. Sometimes poverty occurs because individuals make irresponsible choices, and sometimes poverty occurs because of systemic injustices that keep people down. The Bible views both of those as real legitimate things within poverty, individual choices and systemic injustice. And what's so striking to me when I listen to the political debates is that each side takes one of those things and refuses to talk about the other often, right? They really only want to emphasize one side or the other, but if you're going to try to be biblical, you've got to be both, even though that's not going to fit in easily with either party's platform. And again, we do that, all of that, because we're not putting our hope in politics. The reasoning that I often hear for not doing that, for making those compromises, is that if we tell the whole truth, we're giving ammunition to the other side. And we might be, but our hope as Christians is not in winning some battle in this age. It is being faithful to Jesus and letting the chips fall where they may, because our ultimate hope is secure. And then one last thing that we should do. So all of that being said, we should do what we can in the world of politics. We should do what we can. One of the tensions that I feel in a message like this one is that I am um, trying to push against this pressure that I feel and that I think many of us feel in this really partisan world, that politics feels like this beast that likes to gobble everything up and we need to fight against that. But I don't want you to hear then that we should withdraw from politics or that it doesn't matter. In fact, the opposite, I think, is true, that when we are that kind of non-anxious presence doing those other things, that actually enables us to do politics well. William Wilberforce was a British politician at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century. That's a picture of him. Um, if you've heard of him, which I know many of you probably have heard of him, it's because he, of this tireless crusade that he waged against the slave trade, the British slave trade. He gave his whole life to it. Uh, he spent basically all of his 46-year political career fighting to end slavery in Great Britain. 
And um, in 1833, three days before he died, the Slavery Abolition Act was signed into law, and, um, and the slave trade was ended in the British Empire. Now, at the same time as he was that political crusader, Wilberforce was also an evangelical Christian, and he brought those convictions into politics. It was a moral and biblical argument that was why he opposed slavery in part, but he also had a strong sense because of those religious convictions that even his political work needed a certain sort of perspective on it, that his hope was always in God and his goodness and power, not in the British state being right or him winning those political battles. Here's an example, just one quote alluding to that from his practical view of real Christianity. He says, First, then, it is the character of true Christians that they are walking by faith and not by sight. Not that we will retire that station in the world which providence seems to have appointed him to fulfill, but he will not give up his whole soul to them. They will be habitually subordinate in his estimation to objects of more importance. Which is to say, when he talks about that station of the world in which providence appointed him to fill, he's talking for himself about his political career. And he often uses that language of providence to speak about his sense of calling in politics. But what makes that so striking is that he reminds his readers that while we will live in our stations, as he said, we must not give up our whole soul to them. They must be subordinate in his estimation to objects of more importance by which in that passage he's talking about God and our hope we have in his kingdom. That is the attitude we're ultimately called to have as Christians in our relationship to this country and its politics. That providence has put us here, and we should work for good as much as we can. But we must do so without fear, listening well, speaking with respect, telling the whole truth, because what is ultimately important has been secured for us in Jesus not something in this state. We must not give our souls to this world. Instead, we are to live as God's people, and while we live that out in this country, this place is not our hope or our home. Let's pray. Father, I feel the weight of my own failings in, in, in all of this. I pray that you would teach us to hope in Jesus and his kingdom. Teach us to humbly live that out here, to do what good we can, to seek what good we can, but to never let this world lead us astray from our hope that we have in the world to come. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.